say the phrase, the allure of Scotland, what springs to mind? Is it golf at St. Andrews, haggis, or buttery shortbread dusted in sugar? Is it men in kilts, or heaven help us, the bagpipes? For me, what has proved even more alluring than its gorgeous whiskies are the islands dotted along Scotland's western coast. For many years, I was intrigued by their remoteness and their austere beauty. I just had to figure out a way of being able to experience one of them firsthand. This is Archipelago, a podcast featuring island adventures for you to enjoy in your armchair. I'm Alexander Matthews. Welcome aboard. From Glasgow to the Isle of Jura, it's half an hour by helicopter. I don't have one of those at my disposal, though, so it takes me most of the day to get there. First, a large bus winding along moody lochs and around mountains to Kennecraig. Then, the big Kalmak ferry to Port Askeg on Isla. Don't be fooled by it having port in the title. It's really little more than a pier, a pub, and a hotel. And then, another much smaller ferry that battles swift currents to deposit me at the lonely jetty at Fiolin. A bus is meant to take me to my final destination on Jura, but I can't spot it. There's a minivan with corporate tours or something emblazoned on the side. I assume it's there to collect tourists on a package holiday. Only once it has departed and there's no sign of any other vehicle does the penny drop. That was the bus. I have to wait another hour in chilly, windswept sunshine for it to return. When I get on board, I'm one of only a handful of passengers, mostly children who attend the high school on Isla. The 25-mile journey northwards gives me a sense of Jura, its moors and peat bogs, secluded bays, the soaring breast-shaped pap mountains, an occasional cottage. Finally, about two-thirds up this narrow finger of an island, I reach Adlusa. This is a deer-stalking estate and working farm owned by Andy Fletcher and his wife Claire, with a large, ancient manor at its heart. I had stumbled across it on the UK website of Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. The site connects volunteers with opportunities to work on British farms in exchange for food and lodging. Every morning, I don Wellington boots and walk the Fletchers' two dogs. Then, I enjoy a cup of tea back in the cosy kitchen before the hard graft of the day begins. I work three hours in the morning and three in the afternoon with a break for homemade soup and freshly baked rolls between. There is plenty to be done. When I visit, it is spring, calving season, 
And while the four Fletcher children can be relied on to do odd jobs and assorted feedings, Andy and the assistant estate manager are the farm's only full-time pair of hands. Occasionally I'm roped in to help herd adorably dim-witted calves into muddy pens or corral sheep into pasture, a team effort. But much of the time, I'm on my own. There is weeding in the greenhouse, where I shovel clods of weed-choked soil onto the wheelbarrows, pushing this to the compost heap when it's full. In a ramshackle shed, nicknamed the Crystal Palace, I heave chunks of pine to the juddering wood splitter. There's a satisfying hiss as the blade slices into the wood and thuds as the pieces fall to the floor. The scent of pine resin, sharp and sweet, stains the dank air. I'm in forest-fragranced heaven as I pick up the logs and chuck them onto a slowly expanding pile. One rainy morning, I dig a ditch into the side of a hill, slicing into thick, slurpy mud with a spade so that the water streaming downwards is redirected away from the road below. Another morning, I walk down to a storm-scoured cove and collect clumps of rotting seaweed to be used as natural fertilizer. While I work, I also pick up sackfuls of rubbish which is washed ashore, a bounty consisting of bits of rope, fishing tackle and heaps of plastic. Perhaps predictably, it rains a lot. There's also a brief snowstorm, followed almost immediately by dazzling sunshine. Slightly shocked, I wear sunglasses and strip down to a t-shirt to perform my most important task, the planting of juniper. In 2015, along with two other local women, Claire Fletcher co-founded Lusa Gin, an artisanal distillery that operates out of the old stables on the estate. Juniper, the most important of the gin's 15 botanicals, is currently sourced from elsewhere. Claire hopes in the future, though, that they'll be able to use a homegrown crop. And that's where I come in. In a former cattle pen, I lay down plastic sheeting that will protect the plants and prevent weeds from growing up. Then, with an increasingly muddy pair of scissors, I stab the sheet, digging with a trowel through the slit before placing a spindly juniper bushel into the hole I've carved. I'm worried that I'm doing it wrong, that the roots will be too squished once I've covered them with swirl again. Claire seems confident they'll survive. They're tough. These plants have been around since the Ice Age, she tells me reassuringly. Crouched down for hours planting is hard work. Occasionally I stretch my aching back, pausing to admire the mainland's purple and yellow hills and the milky teal of choppy sea separating them from me. By the late afternoon, I'm pretty exhausted. I soak in the huge bath. Even after scrubbing my fingernails, there's still dirt under them. I don't mind. I wear it as a badge of honor. Claire is an excellent cook. Dinner shared with the family is typically something hearty, a Spanish omelette, for example, or chili con carne, washed down with a nice glass of red. Sometimes I'll join them afterwards to watch TV by a crackling fire. Then I return to bed with a book 
On the weekends, when I'm free to do as I like, I go on long, solitary walks. I make a pilgrimage to Barn Hill, an isolated cottage where George Orwell wrote 1984. I tramp onwards to try and catch a glimpse of the Corryvreckan whirlpool. In these dangerous waters, Orwell almost drowned when his dinghy overturned. He survived, picked up by a lobster fisherman, but would be killed by tuberculosis about three years later. The following weekend, I tramp across squidgy peat bogs to the windswept western side of the island where a rustic cottage known as the Bothy offers a free sanctuary for hikers seeking overnight shelter. I stumble across a wild goat and her kid, two of roughly 500, dotting the island. No one is totally sure how they ended up here. One myth suggests their ancestors were left here when Spanish galleons carrying them got shipwrecked on Jura's rocky shore. I visit Jura's only village, Craig House, where most of the island's 230-odd residents live. In addition to its handful of houses, primary school, and a community-owned grocer, Craig House is also home to the Jura Distillery, where the island's eponymous whiskey is made. In the village's only pub, affixed to its only hotel, a local lass is celebrating her birthday. People are friendly, and the drums of whiskey I order soon put me at ease. There's live music and singing, followed by dancing. Sunday evening, back at Ardlusa, the new-leaved trees are silhouetted against pale blue sky. I leave the Fletcher family clustered around the TV and walk down the lane to take photos. The water is mirror calm. My fortnight on Jura has ended far quicker than I wanted it to. I felt at home and content here in a way that feels almost uncanny. Physical labor is tough, frequently tiring and occasionally boring. Still, I found it hugely rewarding. There's been the sheer bliss of spending days outside in the country, by the sea, and far away from the noisy, frantic bustle of urban life and digital distraction. Here, in this decidedly analog world, I've had the satisfaction of seeing physical changes as a result of my efforts, whether it's rows and rows of juniper I've planted or a ditch that I've dug. Much as I love my writing day job, I've relished being away from a screen, doing a day's work with my body, not my mind. This way of life is new, but at some deep, wordless level, profoundly familiar. Maybe I've been communing with all the generations before me who worked the land as recently as my late grandfather. When duty called in World War II, he, a pacifist, took up plow and tractor instead of tank or gun, helping to feed wartime Britain. Me planting juniper might not be quite as noble, but still, it's a way of being a bit closer, a bit more connected to the parts of me formed by the past. The parts of me at home in an outside, rural, analog world. A Jura resident told me that most folk who come to the island are escaping something. Did I come here to run away? No, not really. The two weeks I spent there 
felt like I was actually running towards myself, towards the kind of life I'd like to live, one with more nature and less screen time, more meaningful moments grounded in the present, and fewer superficial and superfluous distractions. On my last morning, as I climb aboard the little bus taking me to the ferry, I feel a wrenching. The ensuing ache lingers for longer, even, than the stubborn dirt under my fingernails. Thank you for joining me for the last episode of Archipelago. It was based on an article I wrote for Business Day in 2019. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to be informed of my future podcasting projects, subscribe to my monthly newsletter. You can find it by visiting alexandermatthews.substack.com. Take care, and once again, thank you for listening. <laughs>